Tonight, we're continuing our study of Revelation by chasing a rabbit. We're going to be talking about the rapture. But let me start, though, before we get into it with a word of prayer. So pray with me. Father, this is your time and this is your word. And the impact that it has on us is phenomenal. When we let you guide us, when we concentrate on what you have said and we take it to heart, And we put it into practice. Just like Christ said in the scripture that we read earlier today, we are wise men building our houses on the rock so that when the storm comes, and boy, can the storms come, even when the storms come, the house stands firm. Father, I pray that we would build our lives on the rock by looking deeply into your word. Help us to separate what we like, what we want, what we wish, And put that to the side and focus on what you've said. Because you didn't say all the stuff in Scripture will not return to me void. You didn't say all the doom and gloom and hellfire brimstone will not return to me void. You said my word. And that means every single word on the page. All of them. So Father, may we take counsel in your word. And may we apply it to our lives. May we bring you honor and glory. Help us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are a lot of different interpretations and theories about the rapture. Um, So before we get into it, I I want you to know uh, I'm I'm coming from a couple of different assumptions as as we're talking about this tonight. First, um, when I say the rapture, I'm talking about a specific event where Christ takes up the church to be with him. That's what we're talking about, okay? As we'll see in a moment, it'll include those that are dead and those that are living. It'll Basic idea is that Christ raises the dead and the living believers to meet him in the air. That's, that's the basic idea of the rapture. And that's what we're talking about, okay? Second thing, for the sake of this discussion, I am assuming what's called a premillennial view. I'm assuming that Jesus Christ returns to earth before instituting a millennial reign, a literal millennial reign on earth. We're assuming that. If you don't assume that, the whole question becomes moot. The, if you take a different kind of position, you really can't talk about the rapture because there's no basic room for a rapture in any of the other positions. So for tonight, we're going to assume a pre-millennial return of Christ to institute a literal millennial reign on earth. Um, we can talk about, we will talk about that later on when we get into Revelation 19 and 20 is when we'll be talking about that specifically. But for now, we're just assuming that. So have, having said that, what I want to do is I want to answer just a simple question. What does the Bible actually say about the rapture? Like I said, there's a whole lot of different interpretations. I'm not here to win you over to one side of the argument or the other. What I want to do, I am going to lay out some different interpretations and how different perspectives see the issue. But what I really want you to get out of this, what I really want to focus on is what the Bible actually says. So this will be less about what the different views say and more about what God has said because God said, my word will not return to me void. So we're going to focus in on that. Um, That's our primary concern. We will talk a little bit about the views, but the rapture isn't so much about when as it is about why. 
The rapture matters because it reveals what the blessed hope of the church really is. Now, notice, I didn't say that the rapture is the blessed hope of the church. That's not what I said. And I said that on purpose because the rapture isn't the hope. The rapture reveals the hope. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. But having having laid out all that, and I'm sorry to have to do that at the beginning, but having kind of set our course, let's dig into the Scripture. And the Scripture, one of the main scriptures we're going to look at, we're going to look at a couple of major ones, but one of the main ones that we're going to look at is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So look with me in 1 Thessalonians 4. We will read verses 13 through 18. This is most... This is probably the clearest teaching in all of Scripture about this idea of rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This is God's Word, and if you let it, it will change your life. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who are fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore... Encourage one another words with me. Father, help us to understand your word. In Christ's name, amen. Paul is writing the letter while in custody in Corinth. It would have been around AD 50 or 51, um, perhaps maybe a year off of that either way. He had started the Thessalonian church just a couple years prior to this. And um, if you remember, he gets the, in Acts, he gets the, he's trying to go in to Asia, and someone stops him. Like, something's just not right about it. The Holy Spirit says no is what he says in the book of Acts. But he just knows this isn't the way he needs to go. And one night as he's dreaming, he sees a man from Macedonia, Greece, that's calling to him, come help us, come help us. And so Paul goes with him, sets sail for Greece. Instead of going into Asia where they had planned, God redirects them into Macedonia. And one of the churches that Paul founds in this Macedonian mission is the church at Thessalonica. It was a young church, just a couple years old by this point, and Paul had had to leave in a hurry. I mean, the Jews basically chased him out of town. Anywhere he tried to go, they were basically trying to chase him out. Um, but he had gotten to Corinth and had gotten a pretty good hearing there and had stayed there until he was arrested. <laughs> And now sitting in custody, chained to a Roman guard, probably under a house arrest kind of situation, we find him writing these two letters to the Thessalonian church. The young church was struggling with questions. Among those questions, what about those that have already died? We know that there's a promise of resurrection. There's a promise of... But are they going to... Are they going to get that promise? What's in it for them? Some might have, some were even teaching that Jesus had already come back. The resurrection had already happened. What were they to do with that? So Paul writes this letter. And in the letter, he's addressing these issues. So we see in uh, verse 14, 
Read with me. For since, and, and in verse 13 he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Um, some of your versions have, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, which uh, shows why commas matter. Because if it's, I do not want you ignorant brethren, that would be a whole different meaning. But he says, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren about those who are asleep. I don't, I don't want you to be, to misunderstand. I want you to know because I don't want you to grieve like others are grieving. You look around the world and you see people grieving. You see people having such a hard time with things that are going on. I don't want you to go through the same kind of turmoil that they are. Boy, does that speak. God says, I want you to be aware of what's going on. Paul writes to them and says, I don't want you to be uninformed because I don't want you to grieve like they do. Now, does that mean we don't grieve? No. But there's a difference when you have hope, isn't there? Grieving is very different when you have hope. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep of resurrection is still valid for those who have already died. And we know that promise. That promise is made sure because we already have the down payment, Christ's resurrection. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. And that doesn't just exclude the ones that have already died. They're included in that. We're included in that too. Not only are the dead promised resurrection, verse 15, they're promised the priority in the resurrection. Look what he says. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This isn't Paul coming up with stuff. This is Paul saying what Jesus has said. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You don't have to worry about it. It's not, it's not, that, it's not that they're missing out. No, we're not going to precede them. They're coming first. Then comes the main event, so to speak. The, the key thing that we look at this passage for, and that is the, the rapture itself. Verses 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. Paul tells the Thessalonian believers that what to look forward to. Christ will descend from heaven and resurrect the dead saints. Then he'll catch up the living saints to meet him in the air. That Latin word for caught up is raptio. That's where we get our word rapture from. But I want you to notice a couple of things. First, Paul is teaching about the rapture in the context of these believers being concerned for those who have already died. He's not teaching this generally so that we'll have information. Paul isn't giving a collegiate lecture so that we'll all be good systematic theologians. Paul is talking to a church that has real concerns. And he's addressing their concerns. He's not, he's not writing this to say when it will happen or what exactly all the different steps in the process are going to be. Paul is teaching that we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because of the resurrection of Christ. That resurrection that gives us certainty on our own resurrection and in the resurrection of the entire body. The church's resurrection is sure because of Christ's resurrection. This is what I mean when I said earlier that the rapture reveals the blessed hope and it's not the blessed hope itself. 
Our hope comes from the risen Lord, period. Our hope isn't in a rapture, no matter when it might happen. Our hope is in the Lord that takes us home. Our hope is in the Lord who catches us up in the air. Our hope is in the Lord who raises up the dead. That's the, where, that's the place. That's the one in whom our hope lies. He is the source and the consummation of our hope. And just as a side note here, are you sharing your hope? It's a good time. A couple of days ago, I saw a friend post three or four minute video on his Facebook page talking about how he found hope in Christ. Can I, can I encourage you to do something? Share your hope whether it's by video, whether it's by phone call to someone, share your hope. Because I don't know if you noticed, but you ain't going to see that on the nightly news. You ain't going to see that in newspaper articles. You ain't going to see hope in very many places. Not unless those of us who have it share it. I did my own video and I was very nervous. And you can probably tell if you watch the video. But you know what? We have a hope to share. And even if it's nerve wracking, we need to share it. A lot of people who need it. Second thing I want you to notice, notice that the rapture happens with the accompaniment of the angelic cry and the trumpet blast. While the rapture isn't necessarily on our calendars, it certainly ain't planned, and it certainly ain't without an announcement. All of heaven is anticipating this moment, and I dare say all of the church should be. Third, notice the inclusion of both the dead and the living who are in Christ. This rapture includes all believers. It's not just for some. There are some theories out there about how there there are different raptures for different groups of people. I, I can't tell you about all that. All I know is that the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are living are called up into the air to meet with Him. And to where are we going? Up in the air. In the clouds. Up to the Lord. We're not merely taken to another side or no location. This idea of being taken up can be like Ezekiel. He would be picked up and taken suddenly to the temple in Jerusalem, even though he's sitting by a river in Babylon. That's not the kind of taken up we're talking about. We're not talking about the kind of taken up where you're having this dream or this vision and it's strange and it's weird and it needs some kind of interpretation. The kinds that Daniel has. Or some of the other prophets do. That's not the kind of taking up we're talking about here. We're talking about a taking up where we ain't here no more. The phrase into the clouds represents something on earth. But it's not really heaven either. I mean, verse 16, Christ descended from heaven before he takes us up. And so it, it seems to be somewhere in between. Maybe that's um, Christ coming down from heaven toward up toward earth, meeting the believers in the air, regardless of whether Christ continues the descent, like some would say, or whether He returns to heaven, like others would say, one thing is certainly clear, the saints are going with Him. Verse 17 promises, so we will always be with the Lord. That is the clearest Scripture on the rapture. But there are other Scriptures that help us along the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 53 also tells us a little bit about this rapture, though its focus is more on what happens to us rather than what's happening around us. Paul tells the Corinthian church, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. This shows us not only that Christ raises the dead and takes up the living, but that He changes us in the process. We are not the same after this as we are before this. And just like always... When you meet Christ, things change, don't they? The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. In the process of rapture, we will take off the mortal and put on the immortal. We will be transformed. Whether we're alive or whether we've already died doesn't make a difference. No wonder it's such a great hope. Paul continues in the passage to talk about the fact that our resurrection in Christ gives us victory. Victory over death. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Death lies defeated. As I think it was John Donne, the English poet wrote, death too shall die. What a great hope we have. And the rapture see, helps us see just how great of a hope it is. Another passage deals with the rapture. Actually, if you, if you, if you get to studying these two side by side, it's remarkable how similar they are. First Thessalonians 4, chapter 4 and chapter 5 really follow in a lot of ways similar to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple during Holy Week and while he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of age? That's a, That's a fairly tough question. That's a question that we all would like the answer to, huh? Well, he talks about several things that will happen between that day and the end, but then in Matthew 24, 29, he refers to his coming. Immediately after the tribulation, Jesus says, of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other here verse 31 seems to talk about the rapture connected directly with the son of man coming in verse 30 is this the same rapture that paul talks about there are some similarities the trumpet the presence of angels the coming of jesus on the clouds There also seem to be some differences. In this case, we have events in the cosmos, the darkening of the sun and the moon, the falling of the stars. There's also the detail that the angels gather the elect rather than Jesus raising them up. But those are not necessarily contradictory either. At best, it's kind of inconclusive. But now that we've seen the major passages that talk about the rapture, at least the clearest of the references... I want to take a few minutes to just kind of lay out some different positions. What does the Bible say about when the rapture occurs? If you look at Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and then verse chapter 5, it looks like the rapture happens with the coming of Christ. In both passages, Jesus comes down from heaven and then it talks about the rapture. Uh, in Matthew, it's one verse apart. In in First um, Thessalonians, it's within a couple of verses. That the view that the coming of Christ, the second coming, the parousia is the Greek word, the parousia and the rapture, 
happening at the same time, all being in one event. That's a view called post-tribulationalism. The post-trib view, as I'm going to call it, um, is that Jesus returns to earth. As he's on the way down, he raptures up the saints, and all of us, saints and Christ, come to earth. He institutes his millennial reign. That's the post-trib view. And it, and it really flows naturally from 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The phrase to meet the Lord in the air, that, that phrase is the word that's used is of a welcoming party. What would happen? A king would be on a journey going to a particular city or a dignitary, an important person would be on uh, his way to a city. Before he got to the city, that city would send out a welcoming party. You get your highest officials, your most famous citizens. If you had an Olympic champion, they would have been in there. If you had someone who was notable for for many, many miles around, someone who had uh, reached a claim and that lived in that city, that's who you would send out to meet the dignitary. And what they would do is they would meet him and they would escort him back into town. That's the word used here. And so it, it seems that the living saints act like a welcoming party, like they go up into heaven, both living and dead. They go up to Christ in the clouds, rather, not in heaven, but in the clouds on his way down, and they say, we're going to escort you on your journey down to earth. But that connection has its difficulties. While it seems that the second coming and the rapture happen simultaneously, the Scripture doesn't actually say that. In fact... As you go on and you read in 1 Thessalonians 5, you read about the second coming of Christ. But when he talks about the second coming of Christ, look in 5.1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written for you, written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then he talks about the day of the Lord. That now concerning, that's a hard stop. It's a way of transitioning from one topic to another. So it looks like Paul is saying, okay, I talked about this topic. Now I'm going to change topics to talk about another one. Would Paul really do that if these are the same event? Wouldn't he just continue? Wouldn't he just say, and then, and keep going? Another problem in the post-trib view lies a few verses later. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God hath not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, John writes to the Philadelphian church in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now both of these seem to say that the church will not undergo the wrath of God. And certainly that is a promise in Scripture. The church is not subject to God's wrath. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. So, so that leads us to another prominent view. If the church can't go through the wrath of God, well, then it must not go through the tribulation. That leads us to the pre-tribulational view. Pre-tribulational rapture view holds that Christ will return to gather His church before the seven-year period called the Great Tribulation ever begins. He comes, he gets the church out of there, the seven years of tribulation happen, then at the end he comes back with the saints to institute his millennial reign. Both, both of these verses, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Revelation 3.10, 
seem to say that the church ain't going to go through it. Since this is the period of God's wrath, the church won't have to endure it. But the pre-trib view has its own problems. For one thing, in Revelation 3.10, the phrase used, in some versions it says, keep you out of, and in some versions it says, keep you from, it can mean either or. So is God saying, I'm going to keep you out of the wrath? Or simply that I'm going to protect you from it? Another issue, um, well, let me give you an example of that. There's a scriptural example of God protecting his people even while he's exercising his judgment. Egypt. When the Israelite slaves are in Egypt, there are some of the plagues that they go through, but there are others that God protects them from. Even though the rest of Egypt is undergoing it, you see times where it says, but not in the land of Goshen, not among the Israelites. The Passover, the angel passes over the houses that have the blood on the door. So it's not unheard of for God to protect his people through wrath through tribulation and not just remove them from it. Another problem is that no real record of pre-tribulational rapture exists in church history until the 1800s. John Nelson Darby really popularized the view in the 1830s, but before that, it was, it was hardly known by anyone. And before 1800, we can find no trace of it. In fact, the early church before Augustine, with the exception of a couple of folks... Origen was one, uh, some of his followers um, were included as well. But almost every single person writing about eschatology before Augustine holds to the post-tribulational rapture view. Then when Augustine comes along, he says, no, 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 this can't be a literal millennium. And, and from then on, almost the entire church is amillennial. There's no literal millennium, even through the reformers themselves. And so it's not until the 1800s that we even see the view around. There's a third view that I think we should mention. It's called the mid-tribulation rapture. Sometimes it's called the pre-wrath rapture. The idea is, um, well, it's certainly true that the church won't go through the wrath of God. But the wrath of God doesn't really start at the beginning of the tribulation it starts in the middle when the abomination of desolation sets himself up. This is why Daniel focuses on that three and a half year period, times time and half a time. This is why John in chapter 11 focuses on that three and a half year period, that that's when the rapture happens. And so the church undergoes the first part of this seven weeks, gets raptured up, and then at the end of, of the 70th week, at the end of those seven years, the church comes back with Christ and he institutes his reign. One of the, one of the good things about this is that it does include that three and a half year mark that Daniel and John refer to. But that mark may just simply mark a change in the nature of the week. It may not necessarily mean that that's when the rapture happens. All the views we talked about can be read in a mid-trib kind of way, but many of the problems of the other two views both come on this view too. I haven't given us all of the discussion tonight, but looking at all of these different things, i, I got to be honest with you, I don't really know what the right answer is. None of the positions are heretical, it seems. All People who hold that all of them have been great men of God and women of God, and even other views too. We shouldn't take anyone dogmatically to the exclusion of someone who would disagree 
this. We shouldn't make it a test of doctrinal fidelity to say, well, you disagree with us on the rapture, so we can't have anything to do with you. We shouldn't be treating someone who disagrees like they're a heretic, at least not on this. But when I consider the evidence, as I know it now, I lean toward the post-trib view. Um, first, I, I think it just lines up with the scriptural precedent. The church goes through trouble and tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. It's not the scriptural precedent that God takes us out before the trouble starts. It's his precedent that he keeps us through it and that we see our rewards after we've endured. In fact, even in Revelation 3.10, talks about, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. Why would the end times be any different? Why would it be different at the end than it's been for the last couple thousand years, for the last several thousand years? The faithful have always suffered. That doesn't mean that the the pre-trib or the mid-trib deny suffering. That That's not what it means. It just It just seems to line up a little bit better for me. Second, the tribulation is not just the period of God's wrath, it's the period of God's enemies' wrath against God. There's a whole lot of wrath going on, and it goes both ways. Just look at the two witnesses in Revelation 11. As they are witnessing, and as they are bringing plagues, they are hated and despised and attacked and eventually killed, and their bodies are debased. They're spat upon. They're not even buried until they're raised and taken back to glory. This is a period where those who believe are intensely persecuted. And it's not God's wrath that they're falling under. It's wrath from the evil one. And it's wrath from men who are evil. There's still lots of questions in my mind. So the issue isn't settled. But I do want to leave you with one other thing. Something that the scriptures are very clear about. And I haven't mentioned it until now. But I think it's the thing we want to drive home as we go. In the Olivet Discourse... In Matthew 24, Jesus gives a lot of information about the day of the Lord. He gives a parable of the fig tree. And then he tells us, chapter 24, verse 36, But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. He goes on to describe the days of Noah, how how people are going about their lives, how, how everything seems to be normal, but then all of a sudden it happens. Verse 42, Therefore, stay awake. Wake up, be sober, be vigilant. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect it to the thrust. Why Jesus goes through this whole long discourse about what it will be like at the end. He gets to the point of why he goes through all this. It wasn't just to answer their questions about when is it all going to happen. He doesn't say when it's all going to happen. But what does he say? You don't know. Be ready. One author put it this way. But you ask, is the church to go through the revelation? That is not the question. It is this. Is the church ready? Are you ready? Ready for either tribulation or rapture? If you are, that's all that matters. What difference does it make so long as you're ready? If you are to be in it, you cannot escape. And if you are to escape, you will not be in it. Are you ready? If Jesus were to come tonight, would you be ready? If he were to delay, would you be ready? Pray that you are. But if you're not, reach out. Comment on this video. Contact the church. 
and we'll get in touch with you. Be ready. Father, help us be ready. Whether you call us home or whether we endure for your sake, help us be ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.